Well, it's good to have you here. So we are in the book of 1 Timothy. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Timothy. Uh, it's a letter written from Paul to a young pastor named Timothy, and we're going through it verse by verse. So we're, we're covering a lot of stuff we don't usually cover in church. We talked about elders last week, elders, pastors, um, same thing in the Bible. Uh, we talked about what an elder is, uh, what the qualifications of elder, elders are. And today we're continuing on. We're going to talk about deacons. So I, I don't know what you know about deacons or what you think about deacons, but we're going to look at the uh, office of um, deacons, their leadership role in the church. And um, if you've ever studied ecclesiology, so ecclesiology is the, the, you know, the study of the church, you'll know that um, elders is actually a pretty straightforward topic What we talked about last week. If you're really into, you know, interesting theories and all that kind of stuff and Bible translation, well, man, deacons, now that's where some fun really gets going. And we'll talk a little bit about that today. But just to kind of get us going, I want to think for a minute, uh, go back to Acts chapter 6. Uh, if you know your book of Acts a little bit, the, the church is in its infancy stage, um, isn't well organized yet. They don't have a building. They don't have, you know, staff yet. Um, they don't have bulletins to hand out and worship band. They're just kind of doing it week by week. And uh, there's a little, bit of a little bit of persecution that's starting in the church. Uh, but it's not stopping the church from growing. It's grown. People are coming to Christ. Of, of all ages are coming to Christ. Um, it's a little bit hard for the leaders to keep up with the growth of the church at this point. Because um, they don't really have a structure yet or a strategy. Um, along with the church that's growing, there's also a large um, group of widows who uh, have become a part of the church. And there's some, kind of, there's some different reasons for this. One is because there was really no social safety net um, back then to take care of widows. And, and in the church, they took that seriously. Um, so they found that was a place to go. Um, so what happens is they've got all these widows that are in the church and they don't have family to take care of them. And so the apostles, they kind of start like a Meals on Wheels program, um, kind of like a Meals on Chariots program or something in there. Um, you know, Peter and James and John, they're like making sandwiches and on a daily basis and handing out a juice box to the, to the widows who come by. And I, when you think about it, it's pretty cool that the disciples, the apostles are, are serving lunch and meals to these women. In Acts chapter 6, it talks a little bit about this. Um, it says, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, th that's what they refer to as Christians at that point, um, a complaint by the Hellenist arose against the Hebrews. So there's kind of in general two groups of people in the church. At this time in Acts chapter 6, up, up to this point, pretty much all the believers are, are, have come out of Judaism. And we don't really have any coming out of uh, the Gentile world yet. That's about to come. And you can really take all the Jews and lump them into two groups, if you will. There are the Hellenists and uh, the Hebrews. That's what they call them here. The Hellenists were, were Jews who were raised outside of, of Judea, outside of the Holy Land. And so they uh, tended to speak uh, Greek. And then what would happen is... When, when these women, when their husbands would pass away and they didn't have family, they were moving back to the Holy Land to be there. And, and so what happens is these widows are coming in. Um, they've got no family. And then there's the, the native Hebrews. These are the women, the Jews who grew up in the Holy Land, who, who had been there for many years, and they tended to speak Arabic. So we've kind of got these two groups. And apparently, when it, it goes on here and it says um, that a complaint arose from the Hellenists against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. So there's these two groups of women, and apparently one group is getting treated better. They're getting better service um, and sandwiches than the other group. And so there's a little bit of racial tension that's starting to spring up in the church. 
So apparently the apostles, like, they're good teachers. They're, they're great at working miracles. They're just not that good at making sandwiches, apparently, and, and um, organizational charts, which I actually found uh, strangely um, comforting this week as I was studying the passage because, you know, as a church leader, I often feel like there's a lot of things I don't do well. And I don't know about you, but I wish I could do everything, and I wish I could do everything well, and I wish that whenever there was a need, I could, I could take care of it. But, you know, even the apostles... Couldn't do anything, or couldn't do everything. There's some, stu- some stuff rising up in the church and they can't take care of it. And it made me think a little bit about, so I don't know, when I'd been at Gateway, like I think four, four or five years or so, um, probably actually less than that. Um, the church was a lot smaller at the time. And when I, when I first came to Gateway, I came out of a youth pastor background and I, I came here and it was a, the, the church was actually smaller than the youth group that I came from. So it was kind of a weird scenario. I came in here and so, um, being a smaller church, I did some different things back in those days. Like, you know, some days I'd look outside and the sun would be shining and we used to have a lawn back then. And, um, our, a lot of our deacons would mow the lawn, but sometimes I'd mow the lawn. So I'd go get it out and I'd, you know, get the lawn more out and mow the lawn and, and then come back in and work on the sermon. And then back in those days, it's when we had like all these inkjet printers around the church. And if my, if my printer ran out of ink or if I you know, ran out of pens or ran out of paper, uh, I just never thought anything different. I would just think, well, I got to go to Vancouver, you know, go to the big city and, and go to Office Max and get myself some, you know, printer paper or whatever. And so I do that. And then I was kind of, oddly enough, I laugh now, but I was kind of the computer tech guy back then because um, we didn't really have anybody else. So if a computer wasn't working, I'd usually try to get it fixed. And that was in the days of Windows 95 which meant something wasn't working almost all of the time. And so I would, you know, try to fix computers, which I, I honestly, I wasn't good at, but I tried anyways. And um, there were several occasions where I remember spending days, literally days, trying to fix computers or fix the software and, and, and write the sermons and do the stuff that I got to do. And, um, and, and at this time, we had, um, we had two young boys, and one of them was, was very, very sick in the hospital lot, at, at the hospital lot, trying to take care of my family. There's a lot of stuff going on, and I think I was just kind of getting run down. And, and so um, there was this day when I was working on a computer, and I think I was tired, and it wasn't going well. Whole day I'm working on this computer. Whole day I'm wasting on this thing, and I can't get it fixed. And um, at the end of the day, we had a guy in the church who was a leader in the church at the time, just a really godly man, loved this guy. He's since gone on to be with the Lord, but he stopped by the office. He, he would drive by here on the way home. And this is a guy who every time I saw him had nothing but encouraging things to say, patting me on the back, just, you know, words of encouragement. But he sits down at my, at my desk, and I'm, I'm at the desk working on the computer, and he's got this really stern look on his face. And I thought, maybe it was a hard day at work, I don't know. He looks at me and he says, look, look I got to talk to you. So I'm like, you know, what's going on? He says, how long have you been working on this computer? I'm like, I don't know, like a day and a half. And then he says, and he, he won't, he's not smiling or nothing, so it's really unusual for him. He says, listen, I just want to, here, just, just listen to me. He says, I don't, I don't want to see you mowing the lawn anymore. And, and, and I don't want to hear you, that you go to Office Max anymore. Uh, there's people who can do that. You shouldn't be doing that. And I don't want to see you working on computers anymore. You know, put down the screwdriver and step away from the hard drive, you know. Yeah. He's like, because for one thing, you're not even really good at it. It's just, it's a, you know, it takes a long time. And uh, you, so here's what we need from you. We need you to study the Word of God. We need you to teach the Word of God. We need you to pray and pray and pray because it's what we need. 
and we need you to lead our church and minister to our people. We don't need you to fix computers. If a computer needs to be fixed, call someone, call a deacon, and they'll find someone who actually knows how to fix a computer, and, and then we'll go on from there. And I tell you, it, at the time, I needed somebody to sit me down and have that talk with me, but this is kind of what's going on with the church here because the apostles, they're so busy making sandwiches that it's taken away from praying, it's taken away time from studying the Word of God and advancing the gospel, and they can't keep up with everything. So here's what happens in verse 2. So the 12, that's the 12 apostles, they gathered the disciples, that's the church, together, and they said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but that wasn't what they were supposed to be doing. So they said, brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit of wisdom, and we will turn this responsibility over to them, and we'll give our attention to prayer and ministry of the word. Now, a couple things I want you to notice about this. Well, for one thing, the book of 1 Timothy is not the kind of book that most churches teach through. And the reason is because we usually think about 1 Timothy as what we call pastoral theology. It's written from a pastor to a pastor. Um, and, and that's all that it's about. And so a lot of churches don't do that. This is what you learn in uh, seminary. It's what you learn in Bible college. I'm going down to Nicaragua and I'll be teaching pastors out of this book. A little bit, little bit different, but mostly what you're learning. So we're learning and, uh, right now about what it means to be a leader in the church. And we kind of have to approach it that way. So I wanna, as, as we look at this passage, here's what you need to understand. This passage is what we call descriptive but not prescriptive. And that's important. In other words, it's descriptive. It tells us what the problem was in the early church and how they fixed it. But it's not prescriptive. It doesn't say when a church gets to be too big and the pastor's fixing the computers, then you need to find seven men and you need to you know, have them serve in the church. Um, but here's what we do learn from this. The elders needed to be focused on, the, on prayer and on teaching the word and on leading the church. And here's why. Because if a pastor becomes too busy for these priorities, then, and if he's not reading the word of God, and if he's not praying, then he's not growing. And he's not seeking God's will in decision making. And he's not learning from the Bible anymore. And, and, and he's not hearing from God anymore. And when he's not growing then the church isn't growing. And the, and the efforts of the gospel are not growing in the community. So the solution is they appointed 12 pastoral assistants to feed the widows. Now, I kind of refer to this as the proto-deacon board. They're not called deacons, although most theologians, uh, theologians will point back to this when they talk about where deacons come from. So it doesn't call them deacons, but they look like deacons and they sound like deacons, and you know what they say about that. So they're, they're probably, this is probably the proto-deacon board here. And there's a New Testament pattern that we see. That when elders and pastors, um, they, they need to focus on, on the Bible and on prayer and on leading the church. And when they are too burdened to the point where they can't do those things well, where they don't have adequate time for it, then they should appoint other people in the church, assistants to come along and help with the work of the ministry. And that's what a deacon is. They are an assistant. They are a help to the elders. That's the, that's the pattern that we see in the New Testament. Deacons are spiritually mature men, and we'll talk about women as well, who come alongside the elders and they assist in ministry. And the first time we ever see the word deacon um, translated this way is in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Um, Paul and Timothy are together. They're writing the letter to the church in Philippi. And uh, they say this, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. So three groups are listed here. 
There are the overseers or, or past, pastors, elders, as we talked about last week. There are the deacons that we'll talk about this week. And there are the saints. That's you guys, right? So everyone in the church has a role to play. There's elders and they have work to do. There's deacons and they have work to do. And there's saints. That's you guys. And everyone has a work to do in the church. But when we talk about a deacon, the Greek word that we get deacon from is uh, the word diakonos. And that simply means a servant. So a deacon is just a person who serves, that, and that, that's what they do. Now, in the New Testament, you'll find a whole lot of descriptions about what elders do. Lots and lots of, of descriptions. But you won't find a description of what a deacon does. Nowhere in the New Testament does it say, deacons must do this. And the reason, I think, is because what a deacon does depends on each church and what that church needs and, and, and what the elders do. And in the book of Acts and in the New Testament, we can kind of infer some of the things that deacons did back then. Um, they handled money, we can see. Um, they served people. They were involved in um, you know, uh, serving communion. They were involved in managing the church. They were involved in overseeing the ministries of the church. At Gateway, we have deacons. Uh, we have a, a group right now of nine men. And those men uh, oversee the finances of the church. Um, the facility needs, so, you know, if the roof's leaking, uh, I, last night I found a deacon, and I said, the roof's leaking. That's what our deacons do. Um, they interview people for membership. Um, they oversee the deacon's funds, so when people need food or when they need some help financially, our deacons help them with that. They oversee safety issues in the church. Uh, they help with communion and whatever else is needed. Um, we have, so we have elders, pastors, we have deacons, two distinct roles, and we're going to talk today about some of the differences there. Now, one of the things we notice about elders and deacons is they're mentioned often hand in hand in the New Testament because they, they work together. Um, but as a church grows, it can only have a limited uh, amount of elders. And there's several reasons for that. One is just because of qualifications. And another reason is because the elders, according to the New Testament, are really to be the decision-making group in the church. And you can only have so many decision makers if you've ever been on a team before it gets hard to make a decision anymore. But a church can have as many deacons as they need. There's no practical reason why there has to be a limit of deacons. So for those of you in the church who uh, are aspiring to leadership, I would encourage you to think about the position of deacon or deaconess. So we're going to talk about that today and we're going to start by talking about some requirements just as we did last week for elders. So it's going to talk about deacons here. Now it says deacons likewise. I want you to notice something here, uh, first of all. Um, he just talked about elders, and now we're going to, talk about, we're going to talk about deacons. Two interesting words in the New Testament you always want to make note of. Whenever you see the word therefore, or whenever you see the phrase, or the word likewise, that's always a key that what's about to be talked about is connected somehow to what was just talked about. So we're going to kind of continue on a discussion, and that discussion is about leaders in the church. Deacons likewise, so like elders, deacons are to be men worthy of respect. You remember elders would be men worthy of respect as well. Sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. So let's talk for a minute about some of the requirements for deacons. First of all, they need to be worthy of respect. Uh, without character to fact that you know of, they need to be holy, sanctified people. So first of all, if you are here last week, you might remember we talked about that. It means the same thing that it meant for an elder. That they're the kind of people that you look at and you think, I'd like to be like that person. I'd love to have that person. You know, I, I admire their marriage. I admire their spirituality. I admire the way they're raising their kids, the way they do their job, the way they love God, the way they know their scripture. It's somebody that you look at and you would like to be like that person. They're worthy of respect. Um, sincere. 
So a lot of the things that we're going to see about deacons and elders are the same, but this is a different one. It says deacons need to be sincere. That is to be heartfelt or earnest or honest or a big word today is the word authentic. Now, here's what's interesting about the word. The word for sincere here in the Greek is the word dialogos, which means two words or two tongues. Uh, in other words, what it means is double-tongued. Double-tongued means this is a person who, who says one thing to this guy and then says a different thing to this guy. Right? This is a someone who kind of you never really know what they're going to say. They kind of speak out of both sides of their mouth. They say one thing, then they do another thing. Maybe you've met people like that. Like you're never really sure you can trust what they say. If they make a promise, you don't know if they're going to keep it. When they're talking to you, they say one thing, but then they go talk to those people. And you, there's just something in your head that says, I'm not sure that they're telling all of us the same thing, giving us the same story. And he says, deacons cannot be like that. Deacons must be genuine people who, when they talk to this person, they say the same thing they say to that person. And when they say something to you, it's actually what they think. It's actually what they believe. They must be genuine or, or through and through whole. And when they, when they ask you, when, when they say, how are you doing? So like, you know, probably five or six or 25 people when you came in today probably shook your hand and said, hey, how are you? And you kept walking and they kept walking, right? Because that's kind of how we make small talk. Like, hey, how are you? And, you know, before you even answer, you just kind of move on, right? And that's what we do in our culture. But really what it says here, the idea is that this is a deacon is a person who they're walking by, you're walking by and they say, how are you? And you just pause and then they just stop dead in their tracks. And they look at you and say, wait, how are you? Are you doing okay? They look you in the eye. They, they listen to you. I had a big conversation with some people afterwards when we were talking. Somebody said they just went to a conference this week and the whole conference was on how to listen. And I said, it seems to me like one of the biggest things about listening is just shutting up your mind and listening to what people say. Isn't it true? Because a lot of times when we're talking to people, we're not really listening. We're just thinking about what we're going to say next. A deacon is a person who doesn't do that. They listen to you. And then they ask you clarifying questions. And, and if they say they're going to pray for you, you know they're going to pray for you because they're, they're genuine, they're sincere. In other words, they're like Jesus, right? They, they love, they genuinely love, they don't put on an act, they really care, and they really serve people. Which begs the question, so if you're not a person like that, how can you become a person like that? And here's what I found. Here's a great way to start. Just, if you want to build sincerity, then you can do it this week. When you're, when you're leaving the service today, uh, you know, when you go to the store this afternoon, when you go to Starbucks, you know, just kind of walk up to the counter when the person says, you know, what can I get you to drink? Just look at the person, look them in the eye and say, um, well, before that, how are you doing? Right? And I talk to people at Starbucks all the time. They're like, nobody ever means it and stuff. But just stop and go, how, no, how are you doing? And then once they tell you, just ask them a clarifying question. And how can I pray for you? And again, I know it feels awkward, but I've never had anyone say, don't pray for me. I don't believe in prayer. I don't believe in God. Even people who don't believe in God will always ask for prayer requests because there's always the outside chance they know that they're wrong and then maybe their prayers will get answered. But this is someone who really, you talk with people, you look them in the eye, you listen to them, and, and, if, you, and if you say you're going to pray for them, you actually do it. These are people who are sincere. Sincere. We need that in the church. We need that in the world and in our leaders. And not indulging and much wine. So said the same thing last week about elders. And this is really a funny one to me because it never fails how many times we go through this. I still have conversations with people the next week who will say, so leaders aren't supposed to drink alcohol at all, right? Like, did you take notes? Did you listen to anything I had to say? It doesn't say that, all right? It says, it says that they, they, they don't have an addiction to wine. They don't have an addiction to alcohol. And we could even, in our 
in our culture, we could even say it goes beyond that. Because there are other things in our culture that people use to escape from reality um, or to, uh, to cope with stress. But deacons cannot be controlled by, by their drinking, by alcohol. They have to have self-control. So sometimes people will tell me, I don't drink al- alcohol at all because, you know, my mom was an alcoholic or my, you know, relative killed himself or whatever with alcohol and so I can't do that. And I always say, then that sounds like a very wise plan to me. And I grew up in a family where there's a lot of drinking out of control and I kind of developed the same attitude. Plus, it doesn't hurt that I just don't like alcohol. But anyways, that's a whole other issue. But you, you need to know yourself. And for some people, that means, you know, no drinking at all. For other people, that means I, they can control themselves. But it doesn't say they, they can't drink. And we need to be careful as a church about becoming legalistic about that. But here's part of the point for this passage. I think what he's saying is deacons have to have self-control and be wise. And as one commentator said this week, if you're the kind of person who has to self-medicate to cope with stress or escape reality, you probably shouldn't be a deacon or an elder in the church. In other words, for some people, um, they, have to, they have to drink at night because it's the only way they can deal with the stress at the end of the day. They, we call it self-medicating so that they can finally fall asleep. And of course, that's not a good plan. That's not a good strategy for dealing with, with stress and with coping. And in the church, if you're a leader, there'll be a lot of that. So if that's a problem, he says, well, don't be a deacon. Don't be a deaconess. Don't be an elder. And then he goes on and he says this, not pursuing dishonest gain, not, not greedy. So there's nothing wrong with, a, with being a hard worker and making money. There's, not, there's nothing wrong with working hard and saving money. What he's talking about is dishonesty here when you're unethical, when you, when you go to unethical lengths to make a dollar. So if a deacon is like that, you can understand if he's willing to lie, cheat, and steal to make money, there's Obviously, all sorts of red flags going up. One of the red flags that, that concerns me as a pastor, and it hasn't happened often, but it's happened a couple times um, in the years that I've been here, where maybe I'm out in the community, maybe I'm at the store, maybe at Starbucks, and I've had this happen. I'm in line, I get in a conversation with somebody who I don't know, they don't go to Gateway, we're talking. And then somebody who does go to Gateway walks by, and I'm like, hey, how you doing? And the other guy says, hey, how you doing? And he walks by, and then the guy I'm talking to says, how do you know him? And I'll say, oh, well, he goes to my church. To which this person who doesn't go to Gateway will say, oh, that's too bad. I work with that guy. I know that guy. That guy's greedy. That guy's dishonest. He's, he, he's stealing from work. You know, and you can imagine when he finds out that that person goes to, to Gateway, that isn't going to really reflect well on our efforts to reach out to our community with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But there's also another reason. Because if a person is unethical outside the church, there's a good chance they're going to be unethical inside the church. And what you see, and I've seen this over the years, not really here, but I've seen it at churches where guys become leaders in church and then they use a directory like their own personal business Rolodex and then they start inviting the members over to dinner to get them involved in their, you know, their pyramid scheme and to get them to buy their stuff and, and to sign up for their business. And, and he, what he's saying is leaders can't do that. They can't be involved in that kind of stuff. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't do business together as Christians. In fact, if I got to hire someone to, like, you know, repair my computer, um, I always want to hire somebody that I know, that I trust, somebody that goes to my church if possible. But a deacon can't be like Judas. Judas, who had control of the money and was stealing, was stealing out out of the ministry money that Jesus had. Deacons oversee finances at Gateway. So you cannot have greedy people who are willing to lie, cheat, and steal, obviously, to make money. 
He goes on in verse 9, and they must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They have to have sound biblical theology. Now, this is one of the main differences between an elder and a deacon, is theology. Both must be good theologians, all right? But only elders need to be able to teach it. So one of the differences between an elder and a teacher is they both need to be theologians, but only the elders have to actually be able to teach it. So one writer put it this way, an elder primarily leads with their words through teaching, preaching, and counseling, and a deacon primarily leads with their hands through serving in action and doing things. And a church needs both of those from their leaders. Deacons, though, must have sound theology. They need to have a grasp of the Bible. They need to have personal convictions about the Word of God. You should be able to go up to a deacon. So I'm putting our deacons on the hot spot this week. Just go for it. Try it. You should be able to walk up to a deacon and say, what, yeah, could you please explain the Trinity to me? And they should, something should come out of their mouth that sounds faithful and, and some scriptural verses. Or I'm trying, to, I'm trying to deal with the sovereignty with election and free will. Could you, you, know, could you help me? Um, where in the Bible can I read about the deity of Christ? And they should be able to give you somewhat of a clear answer. And if they can't, they should say, well, I'll, you know, I'll go figure that out and I'll give you a call. If you're a deacon, you've got to know the Bible. You've got to study it, read it, and be able to grasp it. And then he goes on in verse 10. And they must first be tested. And then if there's nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. So they must be tested. They must be proven over time. So at Gateway, we don't invite anyone who's new to the church to be a deacon. We, we want them to have time here. We want them to, to become members. We want there to be a f- sufficient period of time uh, to be able to prove their character because you can't really know a person until you've seen them over time, until you see how they react under pressure, right? And how they make decisions and, and, and you need to hear their theology and, and you need to observe their marriage and how they raise their kids and how they treat other people and how they, how they serve. So they need to be tested. So at, de- uh, at Gateway, we have deacons and, and uh, you know, people ask, how do you become a deacon at Gateway? Well, first you go here for a while. You attend. We want to see your life. We want to see you be faithful. You can get involved in serving in different ways. And then every year, we usually need a couple more deacons on the board. And, and so what we do is we, we take nominations from a committee. Um, we kind of, you know, I literally, I go through the directory, you know. Um, I think about people. I pray about people. A lot of times, I'm, I'll go and meet with people in advance and just sit down and talk. Talk about what a deacon is. Talk about what deacons do. I encourage people um, to pray about it, to think about it in case they're nominated. And then we take nominations and, and, and the board talks about it and the staff talk about it. And ultimately, we bring it to the whole congregation because we want everybody involved, want everyone who's a member in the church to be involved in decision-making because you might know them. They might be your neighbor or your boss or coworker, And we want to know if, if they meet these qualifications. So these are some of the qualifications of deacons. Now, we are in pastoral theology, all right? Pastoral theology has a fair amount of controversy in it in different areas. And so you might be going, well, where's the controversy this weekend? And here it is. Um, the controversy is in verse 11. And it is, oh, it's a doozy. It's great. So it's about women and ministry. So let me read the verse for you. In the same way. So again, right? There's that phrase, in the same way. So Paul's continuing on. He's talking about elders. And then he, he said, now let's talk about deacons. And now let's talk about women, all right? In the same way, women, some of your Bibles say wives. We'll talk about that in a minute and where that comes from in the Greek. But women, women must be worthy of respect and not malicious talkers, but temperate 
and trustworthy in everything. So he's kind of tight. He's in the same discussion, but he's got a new focus. He's talking about women. And here's where it gets good. All right. Who is verse 11 referring to? Now, I got to tell you, um, in studying for this sermon, I spent more time in verse 11 than anywhere else. And just for good measure, I think I logged another, what, probably 35, 40 pages this morning reading some more about this. So here's something I've learned over the years. When you come to a passage and there are different views that are held by people who, and I'll, I'll tell you, there are people who are smarter than me, more godly than me, done ministry longer than I am, wiser than I am, who, who disagree on this passage. So whenever I come to a passage like this, and there's people that are smarter than me and wiser than me, but they don't agree, it's usually a red flag, and I'm going to move forward cautiously. So let's move forward cautiously, all right? Three basic exegetical options. I have a big word for you this morning because we're in pastoral theology. Three basic exegetical options. Who are the women in this passage? One view is it's talking about women who assist deacons. So in some churches, they have men who are deacons, and then sometimes these men will um, uh, call upon women to assist them in certain ministries. And so they'll say, that's who this is talking about. Some churches will say, this is talking about the wives of deacons. And they get that from some of your Bible translations that actually say wives. We'll talk about that in a minute. But in verse 1 and 2, they basically say only men can be deacons. But there are other theologians and churches that say, no, women can be deacons. And it's talking about women deacons or deaconesses. Some translations actually say deaconesses. And the NIV footnote, it says female deacons. There's a way to dodge a bullet and not take a stand. Um, so, you know, there's different, there's a lot of different ways to deal with this. So let's, let's just kind of break this down for a moment. First of all, the word women in your text there, or some translate as wives, it's the Greek word gyne. All right? Um, the Greek word gyne, and the, the Greek word gyne just means women. Sometimes they're married, sometimes they're not. Um, now, sometimes it does mean married or wives. So people wonder. So is it wives here or just women? Well, just so you know, earlier in the book, in chapter 2, verse 9, Paul uses this word gyne also when he says, I want women to dress modestly. Now, he's, he's not saying wives should dress modestly and single chicks are free to dress inappropriately if that's how they feel because they're trying to catch a guy, right? It's not what it's... And we know he's talking about everyone. So he tends to use... He's using the word gyne to talk about all women in the past. So... Is he talking about women? Is he talking about wives? Well, so here's, I've done this before. Um, so people always want to know what's the correct view. Which one is it? And my answer is yes. Okay, that's my answer, yes. Now, again, let me tell you why I say that. Because there's a lot of people who are smarter than me. And, and, and let me tell you one other reason I say yes. Way back at the beginning of the series, remember I told you there's some primary issues and there's many, many secondary issues. Some of the pri primary issues are issues that we need to be willing to die for. We need to be willing to fight for. Like um, Jesus Christ was born of a virgin, came in the flesh, lived a sinless life, died on the cross as the atonement for our sin, that he rose from the dead, that all who place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ are saved based on faith and the grace of God. Those are things that we stand on and those are things that we will die for. Those are primary truths. I don't believe whenever you come to a passage of Scripture that's so vague 
than it was ever meant to be primary. So I'm, I'm not, honestly, I won't fight over this verse. I won't argue over this verse. But I will present to you the different views that people have on, on this. And so that's why I say when people say, which one is it? I say, yes. All right? Uh, there are churches where they apply this to women who assess deacons. And I would say, having gone over, and we don't have time this morning to go through all the biblical evidence, but I would just say, yes, you could absolutely make a very solid case for that. Some people say, oh, this is the wives of deacons. And I would say again, yes, you could make a very solid case for that. And others will come along and say, no, we believe it's women who are deacons. And again, I would say, yes, you can make a very solid case for that. And then you'll just say, this is why I don't ask you questions, because you never answer them. But anyways, I'm just saying, now, just to, but to give you a little perspective, some, some people will say, well, this is actually about women who can be deacons. And here's one of the verses they like to point to. In Romans chapter 16, verse 1, Paul is wrapping up the incredibly great and deep letter of Romans. And when you close a letter, oftentimes you would address some people. You would acknowledge some people, and here's the way they did it in the, in the Greek world back then. You started with the most important people first, and you worked your way down, right? And that's how you closed the letter. So when Paul's writing this letter, he starts with a woman, and her name is Phoebe. And he says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe. And then he says this, a servant of the church. Now, here's what's interesting. Paul gives this woman the preeminent place in the closing of the letter, and he calls her a servant. But guess what that word is in the Greek? It's the word diakonos. It's the word we get deacon from. To which some people have asked, so why do they translate it as servant and not deacon when everywhere else they, they translate it as deacon? And the answer would be, I hope this isn't hard for you, but you know that your Bibles are, they're translations. That scholars get together and they try to translate it in a word that, that's helpful. And Oftentimes they translate it as servant because the men who translated that verse don't think that women can be deacons. So obviously they're not going to choose that word. But that's where teachers come along and go, ah, we need to peel away the English and we need to ask the question, what could he be meaning here? Some people look and say, this is the word deacon. It's the word in the Greek. It's the word we get deacon from. And there's no biblical reason why we wouldn't use the word deacon. Now, on the other hand, there's the other rebuttal, like I read a commentary by a guy this week, and this is all he had to say about it. This is how he defended his view. This man thinks that women can't be deacons, and this is how he defended it biblically. Only liberal churches have women deacons. <laughs> that was how he defended it. He goes, well, you're just a liberal if you have women as deacons, and that's, that's what it comes down to. And here's their response. They'll say this. Well, you have, you have churches, for instance, um, that don't have women deacons, um, but they're just kind of plain semantics, if you will, because they still have women who do deacon stuff. They have women who make sandwiches. They have women who, fee who, who visit the sick. That's a deacon. They lead kids' ministries. They lead women's ministries. They work in youth ministries. They lead in administration and the church. But what they'll say is these churches, they just play semantics. Instead of calling them what they are, which is servants, they, they give them a man-made title. Let's make up a name. We'll call them director, right? Or we'll call them a coordinator. And these churches say, why don't they just call them what they are biblically? They're, they're deacons, or we would say deaconesses. And again, we can go back to last week, but some people don't do it because they're afraid of the authority of deacons in the church. But the Bible says that the authority in the church is from the elders, 
not the deacons. So at churches like Gateway, here's what we say. If I'm having lunch with a pastor and he says, we, we're, we're view one in our church, I usually shake his hand and go, well, good for you. I, I hope that's working well. God bless you. And if somebody says, well, I'm willing to you know, go to bat for, for, verse two, for, for the second option, I'll be like, that's great. I hope that's, that's working. And, and, and if you go for the third view, that's great. At Gateway, we have deacons and we have deaconesses. We have deaconesses. We have women who serve our church. They're appointed um, by the church to serve our church in specific ways. So, what does Scripture have to say about these women? Well, it says several things. Here's some characteristics. It says, in the same way, these women or these wives must be worthy of respect. Now, we've already heard that phrase used before. It means they need to be honored by others. It's exemplary Christians. Now, I think about it this way. Um, I have a 16-year-old daughter. She was born. She's been raised in this church. I love my daughter, Abby. I invest a lot of time with my daughter, and I have big hopes for my daughter when she grows up, what her character will be like and her love for God and her love for people. Really, when it says worthy of respect, what he's saying here is these are women that you could look at and say, I would, I would be thrilled if my daughter grows up to be like, like that woman. That's kind of what this is here. And I'll tell you, what I'm really thankful for is our church is filled with godly women of whom I would just be ecstatic if my daughter grows up to be like so many of the women in our church. That's what it means to be worthy of respect. It also says they, they cannot be malicious talkers, not prone to gossip, slander, lying. In other words, women who lead in the church must have a well-disciplined mouth. They need to have control over what they say. Um, because if you're a leader in the church, people will come to you and they will confide in you. People will come to you for advice. People will come to you uh, to help make a decision. They will come to you with complaints. People will come to you with, with gossip. People will come to you with slander. And here's what they need from you. They don't need you to feed their gossip. They don't need you to feed the slander. They need, what they need is, when, when people go to, to leaders, what they need are conversations that are spiritual. What they need are conversations that reflect Jesus. What they need are words that are edifying and building up spiritually. And so it's important for women who lead in our church to make sure that their responses are not malicious responses, but godly responses. See, church leaders cannot get involved in negative talk, gossip, slander, backbiting, lashing out with angry words. For one thing, because it's, all of it's unbiblical. Like the Bible's very clear, all right? But there's another practical reason. See, when women who are leading in the church, who are involved in ministry in the church, um, are malicious talkers, it's like everyone figures it out for one thing. It's like we're in a great big sign that says, um, don't come to me if you need to confess anything. Don't come to me if you need to confide anything because I can't keep a confidence. I'll tell people. Don't come to me if you need wisdom because I, you know, I don't care about that. I just talk about whatever I want. Don't come to me with your gossip because I'll feed it. Don't come to me with your slander because I'll, I'll share it. Instead, what this means is women are to be those who, uh, whose conversation is spiritual, whose words are wise, and whose words are full of faith. Very important. And then he goes on and he says, and these women must also be temperate. That means not prone to emotionalism. So if, if, as one writer said, if you, are, if you easily become emotionally unhinged, don't be a deaconess, don't be a deacon, don't be a leader in the church, because people, you deal with people and people's lives are, they're messy, right? Um, and as human beings, we're conflicted. There's some good things in us. We have some sin in us. We're hurting. 
We have areas of failure, illnesses, sickness, death, that kind of stuff that we deal with. And if you're prone to overreacting and, and emotionalism, it's going to be hard for you to minister to people and encourage people and guide people if you're always freaking out every time someone comes up to you and tells you their story. I tell you, I'm so blessed to be married to Christy. My wife is a godly and um, temperate woman. And it's good for a person like me who kind of revs up high most of the day. It's good for me to come home and, and to come home every day. I, I always get the same woman every day when I come home. A woman who is wise and who is patient and who is loving. And that's what women need to be. They need to be temperate. And then they need to be trustworthy and everything, just faithful in every, and, and this is kind of a junk drawer statement, just, you know, Paul's going, in case I missed anything, faithful, trustworthy everywhere. Not just trustworthy in some things and not in others, but trustworthy as a wife, trustworthy as a mother, as a daughter with money, with her words. So these are some of the requirements that he says for these women or these wives or these deaconesses. And then he gives a couple more for the men. See, which is what makes this, this whole passage so interesting for me. And I wish we could go on about why the, the whole way he puts it together is interesting. But he, he gets into some men as well as he wraps this up. These two are very, uh, they should be common if you were here last week. We talked about them with elders. He says he must be the husband of one wife. So we talked about that last week. You can refer back to your notes. But a one-woman man who's sexually pure, and he needs to manage his children in his household well. Again, we talked about this last week. This is a man who's engaged with his family. Right? This is a man who's not sacrificed his family for his job, for his career, for making money, for his ministry. He provides for his family. He's involved with his family. He mows the lawn, and he leads his family. He invests in them. So, deacons. Now, he closes with this before we move on um, next week in the next passage. And he talks about rewards for faithful deacons. Those who have served well as deacons gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. Two things he says that deacons get as rewards. First of all, they get honor. So we should be those who respect and honor our deacons. So let me just say this. I've been at Gateway for 20 years. Now, before I came to Gateway, I served at several other churches and interned at a few other churches that had deacon boards. One of the things that scared me and convinced me I should never ever be a senior pastor were those deacon boards. I worked at churches, not as a senior pastor, but in other churches in different situations where there were boards who were full of men who were power hungry, who were kind of angry people, who liked to boss people around, who were more interested in money and power and authority than they were in serving people. And those kind of boards scared me. I've been at Gateway for 20 years. I've dealt with 20 years of deacon boards and of deaconesses. And I can tell you this in all sincerity. I have never, ever served with one deacon or deaconess that I did not have a profound amount of respect and admiration for, even if we didn't always agree on every issue. I, I cannot tell you how blessed we have been as a church to have the men and women who have been willing to sacrifice their time and their energy and their effort and their money to serve you. And for so many of you, you don't even, a lot of times you don't even know who those deacons and deaconesses are. We don't, they don't want their picture on a wall. You know, they don't want plaques or any of that kind of stuff. They just love you and they want to serve you. But I'm just telling you as the, as the lead pastor in this church, we have been a blessed church. And so I can just tell you with confidence, if you ever meet a deacon or deaconess in our church, they're worthy of your honor. Shake their hand, 
pray for them. If you see them at Starbucks, you should buy their coffee because they've served you and they've loved you. Be an encouragement to our deacons and our deaconesses. And secondly, they get a great assurance. So here's one thing I can tell you. As you walk with Jesus and you serve Jesus, you see Jesus work in ways that you never see Jesus work when you don't serve. So what he says here is when, when deacons and deaconesses serve God faithfully, their, their faith is built up. Now I wish, one, here's one of the challenges I face as a pastor every week when I preach. I wish I could share with you all the stories that I've heard in my office behind closed doors about the miracles that God has done, about the lives that God has changed, about the marriages that God has healed, about the things that God has done in people's lives, brought, brought them back from the de- brink of destruction, brought them out of sin, brought them out of the prisons of their, of their habits. And so many of these stories, and I can't share them with you because they're given in confidence. I always encourage people, you should share your stories. But the stories that I've heard in my office and, and, and with people over the phone has done more for my faith when I get, because I get to see how God works and how God changes lives. When you're a deacon, when you're a deaconess, when you serve people, you get to see God work. You get to see God work miracles and it builds your faith.